This morning, Living on Earth with a Divine Nature, we're continuing through 2 Peter. And the title for this teaching is, Why the Second Coming of Jesus Hasn't Happened Yet. Why the Second Coming of Jesus Hasn't Happened Yet. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But, but do not overlook this one fact. You, if you want to avoid a lot of mistakes, there aren't dozens of things you have to remember, but there are a few things. And here Peter says, if you just focus on this one thing and don't overlook it, you will be well on your way to enjoying a good life. Just don't overlook one thing. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not, and here's what, here's what people forget, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as, as some count slowness, but is but is patient toward you. Read this with me out loud, would you? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, or reach repentance. I was saying King James while I'm reading ESV. How many people does God want to bring to repentance? Every person that has ever drawn a breath or ever will how many of those people does God want to perish? Is there, is there anything in the Bible clearer than that? Everybody, God says, everyone, please repent. It's my heart's desire. Please don't anybody perish. It's not necessary. I don't want anybody to perish. It's a great foundation for life. It seems to be a fact of life that certain truths escape our notice. And, and Peter seems to intentionally repeat this idea of things, of things that escape our notice. He does it twice in this third chapter, but they're not the same. I want to show them to you. Here's the first time he talks about it. It's in 2 Peter 3, 5. For they... Deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He said, here's someone overlooking. The second time he talks about overlooking is in the text we read this morning. And it's in verse 8, just, just uh, three verses later. But do not... Overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord the day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as, as one day. Notice the first overlooking in verse 5 is a deliberate overlooking. They deliberately overlook. The second overlooking in verse 8 is, a, is careless and unintentional. The people described in verse 8... They're, they're pictured as discouraged or distracted or persecuted or upset, and it causes them to overlook. Two kinds of overlooking. One is deliberate, verse 5. They deliberately overlook 
the flood and God's judgment. The other overlooking in verse 8 is unintentional, the result of carelessness. So Peter is saying that all of us, all of us will get into trouble. Not just theological hair-splitting trouble, but real-life trouble. If we don't take the time to think things through, to, to, to make appropriate mental connections between what the Word says and the way we live our lives, if we don't, if we don't make sure our heads are screwed on right when we approach God's truth, Everybody thinks, but not everybody thinks the same. Not everybody thinks about the same things. And, and Peter seems concerned that for many and varied reasons, our thinking, will, our thinking will get more influenced by circumstances and culture than by Scripture. That's it. Our thinking will get shaped more by circumstances that discourage or anger. Our circumstances or our culture. He's afraid that people's thoughts will be shaped by that rather than what the Bible says. It's very unlikely that your soul will be saved, Peter is saying, unless you process this one idea properly. So Peter outlines this It's really a great contrast between these two crowds of people who who were in trouble because they hadn't noticed certain things. They hadn't noticed one thing in particular. Two crowds. First, Peter addressed the wicked mockers of the second coming. They want their life left undisturbed. They don't want to change. That's in that third verse. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's the first crowd that's overlooking deliberately. They've they've blocked out certain plain facts of biblical history, the creation, the flood, the judgment of God. And Peter says it's, it's foolishly, deliberately forgetful to say that everything's just sort of continued uninterrupted from the moment of creation. It was forgetful, foolishly forgetful, to think that God wouldn't judge them for their sin in the future because history proves that God has already judged people for their sins in the past. And they desperately needed to focus on that fact. Second crowd that Peter addresses... Those who are sincere believers, notice in verse 8, they're beloved. And they're in danger of missing the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet. And because they had missed this truth, they were also in danger of neglecting what they should be doing in the meantime. That's the context of verses 8 and 9 that we're looking at this morning. So, point number one. Peter presents a biblical approach to dealing with difficult questions. That's the first thing we learn from this text. You won't live the Christian life very long before you're forced to come to terms with doubts that press into your mind 
and trials that bring pain to your soul. It's important to remember that these situations, they're not sinful in themselves. They're just an unavoidable part of living in this fallen world. And even more importantly, they can be opportunities for growth and development, purifying of faith, commitment to Jesus, if we respond to those times properly. But, but we have to handle them properly. We can't just run and hide. We can't just pretend these questions, these problems, these trials. We can't just pretend they don't exist. And so the Bible outlines a method, uh, a means of approaching issues from a Christian perspective. Look at that verse 8. Let's just look at it by itself. We'll isolate it for a minute. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So let's think about what Peter's saying here. It's simple, but highly important. When, when I'm agitated, when I am confused, when, when you are under fire and trial, when you get deeply disturbed, disturbed in your heart, usually that'll come from one of two things, either brokenheartedness or anger. Those are the two enemies. Make sure, Peter says, make sure you don't overlook Things that are very basic. In, in your search for really deep, profound answers, make sure you don't ignore the direct, obvious ones. Don't overlook this one fact, Peter says in verse 8. That's, that's all it takes to mess up your whole mind. You don't have to be wrong on dozens of things, just this one thing. You only have to lose sight of one important truth to become totally wrong in your thinking and your approach. So, so go slowly. Don't make an emotional response. Stay with the word of God. Stay with the things you know for sure. Don't make rash judgments. I was really, I was uh, stunned. Rini showed me a, a post. I'm not on social media on uh, Facebook, posted by a, a young woman that used to attend this church, faithfully attend this church. And you read it, and she now denies Christianity completely. And what, strike, what strikes you, what struck me, and I made the comment to Rini, the anger, just the anger against the church, against Christianity, her upbringing in the church. And I, and I, and I said, how? How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, Pastor Don, I would, I would never forget something as important as the eternal, patient nature and character of God. We sing about it all the time. And I know, I believe you. I know you would not forget that right now, but you and I are alike. Our thinking changes when we get agitated, when we get troubled in soul. Truth is much harder to keep a hold of when your life is under strain and under fire. One thing can throw everything out of whack. You ever notice? 
You ever notice how a bad toothache can make you forget about every part of your body that's healthy? Just one thing. Peter, he talks to these Christian people, beloved, and he says that uh, our real problem usually is we're almost constantly looking at things temporally and God is constantly looking at things eternally. And if we're going to think properly about God and about ourselves and about our world and about our questions and about our problems, we will have to, we'll have to step back silence ourselves a little bit, get God's eternal perspective on things. What I want to do now, I want to read through some pretty lengthy passages of Scripture. I want to show you in the Bible where godly people learned to do this and the difference that it made. Okay, just so you know, I haven't lost my mind here. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, we'll look at nine verses. I won't post all of these, but some of them I will because they're kind of important. Psalm 73, verse 1. So here's, here's the conclusion. Truly. So there's appearances and then there's truth. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He doesn't mean a physical fall. He's talking about He's talking about his faith. He's talking about the bottom falling out. By the way, by the way, look at what we just read. God bless the person. God bless the person who can honestly take a step back, see what's happening in his own heart, and can admit it. Truly God is good to Israel. But let me tell you where I was. My feet had almost slipped. God bless the person who can step back and look at his or her own heart honestly. It's a rare thing. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. We probably don't think of that as complimentary anymore, but. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, let me ask you something. Can that possibly be true that there wasn't one wealthy person who ever got sick? That's not true, but he's talking about the way he looked at things. There's something going on in the psalmist's brain. He's starting to slip. Six, therefore, pride is in their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. He means they have everything. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. What a phrase. Their tongue struts through the earth. That's great writing. I know it's a lengthy text. I want to keep going just for a minute. 11 to 17. And they say... How can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? The psalmist now. Behold, these, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I think I might have missed a slide. My apologies. Just a minute. All right, let me just read. For all day long I have been stricken, I'm at verse 14, and rebuked every morning. 15, if I had said thus, if I, if I, now he checks himself again. If I keep going like this, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. And if I was underlining now, this would be at verse 17. Until until I went into the sanctuary of God, got together with God's people, God's word, the temple structure then, the reading of the law, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then, now, then I discerned their end. There's the difference. Then I discerned their end. Don't, don't miss that. Asaph's words, as he studies the prosperity of the wicked, the wicked who mock God while he tries to be as faithful as he can be, and he's suffering for it. You can look at the moment, you can be confused and embittered, or you can get your mind on God in his sanctuary with his word, remember his holiness, remember his judgment. You can look at the prosperity of the wicked now, or you can look at the destruction of the wicked, their end. And if you do, you'll end up praying words like these. For behold, whenever you see that, don't just think of a Christmas card. The writer is saying, I'm going to say something now, and I want you to really look at it. He's saying, don't just read the rest of this verse. Behold it. Okay, you ready to behold something? Behold. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What a marvelous phrase. It, it is good for me, 28, it's good for me to be near God. This is not just belief. This is gaining perspective. This is, this is learning to see things as God sees things. Face difficult issues and trials and questions. If I can give you any advice, remember it long after I'm off the scene. If I can give you any advice, face difficult doubts, questions, trials, situations. Face all of them in the presence of God rather than apart from the presence of God. They don't go away, but you look at them differently. 
you look at them differently. God's perspective. Let me give you another example, okay? One more example. This is from the book of Job. And you'll see the similarity. The similarity between Asaph in that psalm, Job here. Everybody knows the story of Job. Job 30, starting at 16. Now my soul is, my soul is poured out within me. I'm leaking inside. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. No, and there's no Advil. The night, the night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Okay, you getting the picture? With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has, God has cast me into the mire. I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help. Not many worship courses say this. I cry to you for help and you don't answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You see me, he's saying, but you're not, you're not doing anything about it. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry out for help? 25. Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? This is Job's way of saying what's going on here is not my fault. I've been pretty good. That's what he's saying. But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly. I cry for help. Help! And then suddenly, without warning, God God starts to speak to Job and all of his counselors that are giving him advice. For four chapters, Job faces questions like these from God. This is 38, 1 to 12. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, this will get your attention. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? There's a good opener. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed 
By the way, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Sun, come up. And cause the dawn to know its place. And just in case the point wasn't made clear yet, God continues just for a moment. 34 of chapter 38. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? That's a beautiful picture, God says, when it rains. I just, I just go like this. When the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together. Finally, Job. He gives God the only intelligent answer he can think of. See, nothing's changed for Job. He's not, this is not yet where, you know, everything's restored to Job and he's, he's smiling again. That hasn't happened yet. 42. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, he quotes what God said to him. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make known to me. Then Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That's what happens in church. You hear of him, the hearing of the ear. But now, now my eye sees you. Remember the text? Behold, look at this. Now, now my eye sees you, therefore, therefore I despise myself. What I said, and I repent. That's a very different tone, isn't it? It's a very different tone. Notice that last phrase, I, I repent in dust and ashes. Something profound here, there's an attitudinal repentance. Job hasn't done anything. This is not theft or adultery. He hasn't robbed a bank. Repentance for what's going on in the heart, attitudinal repentance, is the highest form of repentance. It's not like repenting of theft. It's not like repenting of adultery. Attitudinal. How can I be thinking like this? Attitudinal repentance. Usually for anger, resentment. Attitudinal repentance always requires far more humility and honesty. Attitudinal repentance. Not for stealing or being unfaithful. Attitudinal repentance. Lord, I, I don't love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. I don't even make it out to church very regularly. What's wrong with my heart? That kind of thing. Attitudinal. Looking in here. Repenting for what's going on that isn't pleasing to the Lord. Now here's the point I'm trying to make with these Bible passages. I know I read a lot of them. And it has everything to do with that eighth verse of the third chapter of 2 Peter. The confused psalmist, he still had to face the prosperity of the wicked while he and his godliness, he suffered pain and affliction. And Job never did get any answer from God as to the reason for his suffering. Never once. Read the whole book. He's never told why. 
Job still has to sit there scraping his boils. That's what it says. I'm sorry. Having watched the death of his family, his children, the loss of all his wealth, and at the time of writing of those verses we read, none of those situations had improved one bit. But the attitude has changed. The psalmist, Job, developed a framework for approaching their situations that is radically more faith-filled and God-filled. What happened? What did they come to see that they hadn't seen before? And our text from Peter would say they overlooked one thing. Just one. The one that Peter says we must hold on to. God is from everlasting to everlasting. If you don't remember that, if you don't think right about God, you can't think right about anything else. That's a life principle. You can't map God out with your limited mind. You can't measure him. 2 Peter 3.8 Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, just where is the promise of his coming? It's taking such a long time. To you, it is such a long time. Peter says, with God, a thousand years are like a day. So 2,000 years have passed since Jesus left the earth. Two days. It's like ordering your new couch, thinking it's going to be delivered on Wednesday and finding out it won't come till Friday. That's the delay waiting for our Lord to come back. Look carefully at that verse again. Peter says we can actually renew our minds, cure our souls, just remembering one thing Don't let your head spin with a thousand things. Keep one thing firmly anchored in place. You need something to fix on, to attach your heart to. When all sorts of things pull it in all sorts of directions, anchor. Anchor here. It's not easy to do. The hardest part of your earthly pilgrimage and mine is learning to see things from God's perspective. Years ago, you ever walk through a mall? Sometimes you'll see people with those, uh, I don't know the politically correct name anymore. I still call them seeing eye dogs. I'm sure that's not right, but you know what I mean? The dogs? Years ago, and you'd see them, and, and I remember stopping and asking, what is, the, what is the most difficult part of training a dog to lead a person around like that? And, and the answer this woman gave, this is when we were still in Saskatoon, It is so relevant here, learning to see things from God's perspective. And the hardest thing in training one of those dogs is to teach the dog to see things from the perspective of the one it is leading. Because a dog can come up to a table and a dog can walk right under the table. But a person that's six foot tall can't walk under the table. And it's really hard to teach the dog to look at things from the perspective of the one being led. Seeing things from that perspective. Peter's talking now and he says, now you need, to, you need to live all of life seeing it from God's perspective. And you start to realize your life's a vapor. God has all eternity to make everything right. This is the short part. The long part is still to come. So as much as you can, 
as much as I can, we must look at life from the perspective of God's revelation, and that will build faith and, and patience. I'm almost done. Point number two. Peter says the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is God is anxiously awaiting the chance to show mercy to more repentant sinners. I get that in verse 9, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. That's a little bit surprising because he's writing to Christians. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there's a you and there's an all. So when mockers forget the second coming, they treasure their sins, they live in their own desires, 2 Peter 3.3. 3. When Christians forget the second coming, they lose their passion for the lost, they forget that God is, 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's amazing how badly we can distort truth without even trying. Usually when people complain about God, the reasoning goes something like this. How can you say God is loving and caring and good? You've heard it. Look at the mess the world is in. Look at the hatred, look at the war, look at the cruelty, look at the suffering. Why, why doesn't he come and do something about this? Either he cares, but can't. Or either he could, but doesn't care. So either he's not loving, he's not all-powerful, or worse, he's neither. And it never dawns on the minds of many that the reason he waits is he cares so deeply about those who still spit in his face. That young woman I told you about on the Facebook post, that, that Jesus is there with open arms, oh, come on, come back, repent. He doesn't want any of them to perish, not a one Peter says these people desperately need to repent. God wants all of them to reach repentance. There is no other way to be saved but repenting. No way for you to be saved but repenting. And you know how repentance works. Sometimes people try everything else before they turn to the Lord, right? They try all the things that won't work before they come to the Lord. And you know what that takes? It takes time. Lots of time. Lots of time. Oh, the rich love of God to give stubborn, rebellious people more time. How good he is to bad people. The verse also gives us, and I'm almost done. The verse also gives us, here, our reason for living. Remember those two little words, toward you. In 3.9, he's patient toward you. Not, not the sinners, you, us, right here in this sanctuary. Patient toward us. What, why is he patient toward us? Well, strangely, God says 
He's giving Christians more time on behalf of the perishing. God's giving us more time to reach our calling as ambassadors and disciples. His patience is for me to reach more of the lost. He's giving Christians more time to rescue the perishing. So his patience, this waiting, it doesn't make us question him. It doesn't make us lazy. It doesn't make us slack. It makes us busy. It, it seems God is waiting for us. These people can't just be written off. Jesus died for them. He's waiting for us. Patient toward us. He's still waiting for us to reach them. Later on in verse 15, we'll get to it. Peter says we are to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Be saved. Be saved. That's what God is waiting for. If you're saved, reach the unrepentant. That's what God is waiting for. 